The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. It's a pretty good day to begin, a pretty good way to begin the day together as a body. If you have your uh, Bible with you, I would love for you to open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 13. As I said last week, we're kind of in this phase in 1 Corinthians where, where Paul is answering some questions, um, life's most complex questions. And what we're really going to find today, if, if last week wasn't enough, what we're going to find today is sometimes the answers to life's complex questions are equally complex. Life is not as black and white as often we would like for it to be as Christians. And, and this text is one of those examples. I want to remind you um, of the context of what's happening uh, first in Corinth. And this is a church that Paul has founded. And it's a church that is, that is divided. It's a church that's arguing and bickering over lots of things. And primarily, they're getting stuck in, in the things that are their preferences. And the preferences are revealing themselves around who their, like their favorite speaker is, who their favorite Bible teacher is, how did they come to Christ, who baptized them, who introduced them to the Lord. And they're fighting and they're arguing and they're picking and choosing sides. And... This is causing a lot of division. So what Paul does is he just reminds them of the gospel. That's the first four chapters. He's just going to consistently remind them of the gospel. And then in chapter five, once he's tried to orient them around like what's happening internally in the church, he's making this transition in chapter five where he's going to now talk about the way their, their internal issues are sort of starting to spill out. Um, into their external witness. And I, as I'm uh, just thinking about that spilling out, uh, one of the things that I love to eat is grits. Do I have any grits fans in the room? Perfect. Well, I have, I have my dad a couple months ago introduced me to cheesy grits, which is, a, which is grits on a completely different level. And on, uh, on Friday, I was, I, was making, I was making grits. It's what I do. And I put, the, I put the grits into my boiling water, and what do you think happened? It, it spilled out of the top. See, what was, what was going on inside the pot could not be contained by the pot. And what's going on in a very similar way in the church in Ephesus is their, their internal issues are starting to, are starting to boil over. And one of the ways this is, this is doing that is in their sexual ethic. And where we are in chapter 5, last week we talked about verses 1 to 8 from chapter 5. And the thing that Paul addresses in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 5, he says, um, I can't believe what's going on among you. You have a man in your church who is sleeping with his father's wife. So that's a, that's a sin. And it needs to be addressed. But then he says... In the next verse, in verse 2, he said, and, and you are boasting about this. You are proud about this. So there are, there are two sins that are taking place. In, well, there are multiple sins that are taking place in, in Corinth. Two of the sins that are taking place in Corinth is the, is the guy who's sleeping with his father's wife and the way the church is responding to this. 
Um, they're not responding in, in mourning and sorrow in a way that leads to repentance. Their response is to be joyful about this. Their response is to be boastful about this. And, and there are lots of reasons why they could be doing that. Um, possibly it's, oh, look how, look how grace-filled we are. Look how welcoming we are. Um, maybe they, and, and likely they had tried to resolve the issue, and we'll talk a little bit more about this today, and they weren't getting anywhere with it, so, um, so we're just going to embrace this person. And this is, this is a complex question, and, and the question that, that Paul is ultimately dealing with is, what does, what does church discipline look like? What happens when there's someone in a church who is sinning so grievously that it is beginning to boil out and is becoming public and everyone else is sort of seeing it? Um, imagine, imagine going to that church, imagine being invited, invited to that church and you, and you show up there and there's this guy who's, who's sleeping with his stepmother and, and everyone's not like lamenting about it, but they're celebrating it hey, this is Bill. He's sleeping with his stepmom. We're so glad he's here today. Like that would just be weird. And Paul knows that. So he's going to speak into this text. And in our verses today, 9 to 13, um, he's going to continue to address this church discipline issue. So you can follow along with me. This is beginning at verse 9. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. So one of the things that we can see from this, from just this text is there had been a previous letter that was written to the church at Corinth, right? We call this 1 Corinthians. Well, the reality is um, there's another letter that if we were to discover it and if it were to be canonized and allowed into the text, we would call that 1 Corinthians. So Paul has written this previous letter, and one of the instructions he gave them in that previous letter was, don't associate with people who are involved in sexual immorality. And by what he says next, that tells us what happened. The church, as they considered Paul's instruction, as they considered Paul's um, command in that letter, what they said was, well, Paul must be talking about people outside of the church. So we are not going to, we're not going to be with those, we're not going to associate with those who are sexually immoral outside the church, but by judging by what they did and what Paul says is they accepted it within the church. Does that make sense? They heard Paul's instruction and what they said was, you're right, Paul. We should not associate with sexually immoral people outside of the church, but inside the church, we're going to be tolerant, loving, accepting, and affirming. That's how we're going to treat this instruction. So Paul writes this letter to them, and he wants them to understand that when he gave this instruction, he wasn't talking about unbelievers who are sinning. He wasn't talking about people who weren't Christians who were sinning in these ways. He was talking about the church. I think of John 3, 16 and 17. 
You might see this, at least the first part of this, on a poster uh, tonight in an end zone if you're watching the Super Bowl. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Should have said 16 first, sorry. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the part you're familiar with. And then 17 says, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. See, what we see is this example of Jesus's ministry is that Jesus is necessarily involved and engaged in the lives of unbelievers. Even those, especially those who are engaged in in maybe what we would consider a grievous or a heinous sin. Jesus was around sinners. Jesus was engaged with unbelievers. He was involved with them. He spent his life with them. He spent his time with disreputable people and notorious sinners. This is who Jesus was around. And this came at a cost. Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he was hanging around with all the wrong people. He was hanging around with the disreputable people. He was hanging around with believers who weren't Christians and who didn't act like Christians. And this is something that we need to grasp as we're reading through this text is that we must As Christians, we must be in real relationship with people who are not believers. We must be in real relationship with people who are not believers. This is is really the mission of the church. Some of those people are going to be sexually immoral. Some of those people, the list is right here, are going to be greedy or cheat people, or worship idols. These are the people that we are called to be around. This is what Paul is talking about when he's giving this instruction to the church. And one of the things that we have to do is understand that non-Christians are not going to act like Christians. Do you know why that is? Because they're not Christians. I know that's That's kind of a mind-blowing concept for us. That people who aren't Christians would act like Christians. But we as, and I think this is something that, that we collectively, like as evangelicals in the United States, when we're kind of peering out into the world and we're seeing how non-Christians behave, there's this tension and we're like, why don't people just do this? Why don't people just do this? Why don't people just do this? Why don't people just live moral lives? Well, they're not Christians. They're not going to, to adhere to a, to a worldview. They're not going to adhere to a belief system that they don't have. They're not Christians. We have to stop expecting non-Christians to act like Christians. If you get nothing else from this message today, it'll be a good day. We have to stop expecting non-Christians to act like Christians. See, Paul is telling us that we have to be involved and engaged in the lives of non-believers. And not as the sin police. When we think about the way we interact with people who are non-believers... Our job is not to be the sin police. 
Our job is not to point out all of their sinfulness. Rich Stearns, who's the president of World Vision, he, he said this, The church wasn't meant to be like a law enforcement agency enforcing moral laws on the public. It was meant to be more like a fire department rushing into the world's pain and brokenness to bring healing and redemption. Jesus sent us on a rescue mission as ambassadors of his love. And see, here's, here's the thing about being an ambassador. You can't be an ambassador of his love if you're not with sinners. When our country appoints an ambassador to another nation, that new ambassador doesn't stay in the United States. That ambassador actually goes overseas, probably to the capital of that nation of which he or she is an ambassador, and they represent the United States in the heart of that nation. And in the same way as Christians, we're not the sin police, we are ambassadors for Christ, so we go to places where sinners are even to the places where notorious sinners are and disreputable sinners are. We go to those places so that we can be an ambassador for Christ. One of the questions that, that comes up in this is how, and this, was, this is how we spent, uh, I think, an hour and 15 minutes in our elders meeting this past week. How do we, when we read these verses, how do we interface with the world? How do we interact with people who aren't believers? What's our, what's our role? What's our responsibility? Maybe you've heard that question asked before or, or a statement made like we're, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And, and what does that look like? So we spent, as I said, we spent an hour and 15 or 20 minutes on, on Monday kind of talking through this in, in this particular text, and there's a reason why. Last week, I had the opportunity to go and um, spend some time with our son-in-law, Joel, who's the pastor in North Platte, and his elders, and we were just talking about some different things. We were talking about lots of church things, and Saturday morning... Um, it was, I don't know what it was like here, but Saturday morning last week, it was, it was in Kozad, it was cold, it was wet, and it was windy, which for me is perfect running weather. So I went outside and went on my run, got back, and I, and I walked into the room kind of where everybody was getting ready for breakfast, and a couple of the guys were having this conversation, and the conversation they were having was around uh, something another pastor had recently said. And maybe, maybe you're familiar with this, maybe you're not familiar with this, maybe this will, you know, just kind of go over, go over your head a little bit, but there's a pastor by the name of Alistair Begg, and my guess is you may know who that is. Um, he's a pastor. And, and he had written a book, and in this book, he had given someone advice. Someone had come to him, a grandmother had come to him and said, hey, my, my, I think it was my granddaughter is inviting me to, to go to her wedding, and she is, she's lesbian, she's married a female. And the question for this grandmother was, was, should I go? I think this is, this is one of life's most complex questions, isn't it? How do we, how do we interface with people who aren't, who aren't Christians? And I had kind of heard the story, didn't really know much about it. Um, so of course, that meant that they turned to me and asked me what I thought on it. 
And I, I said, you know, I, I, I said, let's tap the brakes for a second. I haven't, I haven't heard this whole thing. I've heard a couple snippets here and there. But interestingly, next Sunday, we're going to be reading 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 13 at our 1015. So I'm just going to read part of this again. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin, but I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You'd have to leave this world to avoid people like that. So I just kind of read that verse and we, we had a little bit of conversation. Then I thought, okay, I'm getting ready to preach on this text. So I sent a text to, to our elders and pastors and said, you know what, I, would, I, would, like, I want to have a conversation about this on Monday morning because we're going we're gonna to go into this text and this is a real, these are real world things that people in our body I know are wrestling through right now. So how can we speak to this? How can we deal with some of life's most complex questions? And I said, I know we don't care anything about what Alistair Begg says. Um, and here's his sermon, like we want to listen to it, we want to be informed right? So, so this is a lesson for us. When we hear things that other people say, what we ought to do is do a little bit of investigation. Does that make sense? Like rather than jump to a conclusion, we should, we should investigate. So Ann and I listened to, listened to the podcast on the way back, and we had our own conversation, and we had a conversation on Monday. Um, and, and here's where we came down. And I think this might not be satisfying for some of you. But the decision collectively that, that our leadership team made was, we, this is not something that we can bind your conscience on. Does that make sense? We, we can't stand up here and say, hey, you cannot go to this wedding. And if you go to this kind of wedding, you're not a Christian. We can't bind your conscience on that. We can't force you to do something when it comes to that particular topic. And again, like that, that might cause you a little bit of disorientation. But in, in Begg's response to, the grand, to this grandmother, he was like, you know what? You, you should talk to your husband, not because your husband is going to overrule you, but because you're married and you are one together and you should have a conversation about what this looks like. And I think a better, question, uh, a better question to ask is, can I go to this wedding? Should I hang out with this person? Should I do this thing? A better question is, what, what does it look like for me to be faithful to what Paul is saying in this text? As someone who has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us as Christians, is it possible? Is it possible that we could come to our own conclusion on this? I think the answer's got to be yes. And one of the things I liked about what Beg said was, you know, you might go to one, but you might not go to the other. This is what it looks like, as we discussed on Monday, this is what it looks like for us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And I think one of the things that, that we kind of get wrapped up in in this discussion is, is we are such a people who, who just want laws, we want, we want a new law. We want someone to tell us what we should do in every single situation, in every aspect of our lives. This is what we want often as Christians. And what I want to tell you is, in the Old Testament, there were 623 of those things, and they didn't keep any of them. What God is doing in us when it comes to transformation is he's transforming our hearts so that we're into a new way of thinking, so that we are new people. 
So as we wrestle through these questions, like what does it look like for me to associate with unbelievers who sin? What does that mean? You know, there are churches that have ministries to strip clubs, to the women who work in strip clubs. You know, that probably wouldn't be a good ministry for me. But that would be a great ministry for, other, for women to be a part of, for people who, who maybe have been in that industry in the past to teach and equip and proclaim the gospel to them. That would be a super fantastic ministry. We want to be wise. We want to be discerning. But we can't, we can't bind your conscience on some of these things. And we're not going to bind your conscience on some of these things. Here's, here's what we're not going to do. Um, none of our pastors are going to facilitate a wedding for someone other than a male and a female. None of our pastors are going to do that. That would be a violation of what we are called to do as pastors, of what we're called to do as Christians. That's not a matter of conscience. Because as we said last week, plainly, God's design, plan, and purpose for marriage is one man and one woman. Plainly. I want to be clear about that. That's what God's design, plan, and purpose for marriage is. And you may find yourself... And my guess is some of you have found yourselves in some of these other areas where where it's just not as black and white. And what we would encourage you to do, if you have a question about something, like we 100% want to talk to you. We 100% want to have that discussion with you. But we're not in a place where we can bind your conscience over this. As we talked more about this, how do, we, how do we interact with the sinful world? These were some of the things that were said. And this is like what makes a plurality of elders, multiple elders in the room. This is what makes this such a great conversation. Interacting with sinners is not necessarily going to compromise our witness. Interacting with sinners is not necessarily going to compromise our witness. We don't compromise or may not compromise who we are or our beliefs by spending time with sinners. And we can love sinners. We can spend time with them. And that is not necessarily affirming their sin. And what we need in this is we need the help of the Holy Spirit to guide us in these things. We cannot withdraw entirely from the world and fulfill our mission to make disciples of all nations. Can't do both. This is a both and. We we have to interact with the world. We have to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who don't know who he is. Because the church is for sinners. The church is for sinners. Well, Paul wasn't talking about associating with non-believers when it comes to people who sin in these ways. But he was talking about believers. So what do we do when there are believers who consistently persist in outward sin, in sin that damages the body? How do we treat Christians who are in those places? 
Last week, I got a, I got a text from someone and there's this text group that I'm, that I'm a part of. Each week, I send them the verses that we're going to be talking about on Sunday. If you want to be in on that group, let me know, and I'll add you to our text thread. But I send out the, the verses, the main verses that we're going to preach on on Sunday, and someone responded this way. It said, I guess I don't understand this passage. This is, again, I meant that you are not supposed to, not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin or greedy or worship idols or is abusive or is a drunkard who cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. He's talking about Christians. I guess I don't understand this passage. Are we not supposed to help our, follow, our fellow believers find their way back to the right path when they've fallen away? Are we not supposed to forgive 70 times 7? I'm confused. This is a complex question, isn't it? What do we do when we have someone in our body who's in the midst of profound sin? And it's not just, it's not just causing problems in their lives because remember, there is no sin that doesn't ripple out eventually and spill over into the lives of other people. How do I handle people? How do I deal with people? How do I work with my fellow believers who are in the midst of unrepentant sin and they're in our church and I see them every single Sunday morning and I know what they're doing. I know what they did the night before. What am I supposed to do? How do I interact with these persons? This is where we need to remember Matthew 18, Jesus' instruction. If someone, if you become aware that, someone, that you've sinned against someone or they have a sin against you, that's a one-on-one -on -one conversation. I am to go to that person one-on-one -on -one and say, this is what's going on. Here's the sin. I've noticed this. I've seen this. And that might be a more than one-time conversation. I can't stress this enough. This is not a checklist. I'm going to go to you one time, stop sinning, and then if I see you do it again, I'm not automatically going to go to phase two, which is getting two or three other people with me to go and talk to that person. That's probably a multiple-time conversation as well. And then on the final step of that is to bring that person in front of the church. And this is where Paul is with this man. Gather the entire church together. We can assume, as we said last week, we can assume that there was a one-on-one. -on -one. We can assume that there were three or four other people talking to this person. And there was no repentance. There was no desire for restoration. And obviously wasn't. there wasn't because they were all proud of it. So now we're going to gather the whole church together. And what we're going to do is, is we're, going to, we're going to throw this person out. And here's the question again. Are we not supposed to help our fellow believers? What about 70 times 7? What are we supposed to do in this? See, the church cannot continue in fellowship with people who are in persistent sin. So as Christians, we have, we have a responsibility not just to the individual sinner, but we have a responsibility to the entire body. So again, what do we do? How are we supposed to treat them? If we kick them out, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Last week when, when we were done, when I was done with the message, I went and sat down next to Anne and, and she said, you know, I never really thought about this before, 
Um, and she reminded me of the last part of Matthew 18, verse 17. And, and this is where Jesus says, throw them out of the church. He says, um, he says treat that person as a pagan or a, or a corrupt tax collector. He says, do not even eat with them. But here's, here's what's interesting, and maybe this is just a question for you to roll around in your little head this week. Um, how did Jesus, what did Jesus do with pagans? What did Jesus do with corrupt tax collectors? Didn't he spend time with them? See, what this is talking about when we, when a church engages in church discipline and it's saying, don't have anything to do. It's saying, don't have anything to do with them as a church. Don't let them roll into the building on, an, on a Sunday morning, acting like everything is okay in their unrepentedness and welcome them in as though they were a believer. That's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about their responsibility and their duty as a church. Because hopefully, someone is going to be in relationship with that person that, that we have just kicked out, and someone is going to be in relationship with him or her and be able to proclaim the gospel to them, to be able to love them and to honor them and to serve them. This is really critical for us to understand as we, as we think about church discipline. And you should also know, I said at the beginning of this series, like we're not covering 1 Corinthians because we think we have like a whole bunch of issues we have to deal with as a church. We want to be the kind of church that, that is ready to deal with an issue when it comes up. We're not talking about church discipline today because we have some pending church discipline thing and we're trying to get you all ready for it. Like this is just what's next in the text. Okay, this is why, this is why we go through the Bible most of the time in the way that we do because it forces us to talk about uncomfortable topics. It forces us to deal with real life things. So as Christians, as a church, when we remove someone, we are to treat them like a pagan and a tax collector, as a body. And then we are to love, honor, and serve them as individuals, and as a body, but not accepting them as though they were Christians. We don't shun people. If someone were to come through the front door, we're all not going to do this to them. If someone were to be walking across the parking lot on Sunday morning, we're not going to be tossing someone the key so they can lock the door and not let the person in. We want to love, honor, and serve people, but we're not going to treat someone who is grievously not acting like a Christian. We're not going to treat them as if they were. We can't do that, and this is what Paul is talking about here. Because the church is for sinners, and the church is also for repenting sinners. People who are not yet aware of their sin, that's a sinner. And it's for repenting sinners, sinners who are aware of their sin and they are repenting of their sin. And that's us. We are repenting sinners. If you are a believer, you are a repenting sinner. You're justified. You're saved. God sees you that way. And we want to continue to live our lives in repentance. Here's verse, um, verse 12. <clears throat> it isn't 
my responsibility to judge outsiders. I would love for you to let this sink in. As you're, as you're thinking about the way you interact with people who aren't believers. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. Let's continue into 13. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. See, one of the things that, that we have to understand, it uses that word judge, and we had some conversation about that. Oh man, we don't like that word judge. So I went back and I looked in other translations because I wanted to just make sure that the NLT wasn't doing something wacky with a, with a different word. And the other translations that I looked at, they all said judge. So I'm going to stick with judge. See, it is our responsibility to judge those inside the church. This is a responsibility that we have towards one another. This is a responsibility. Judging those within the church is a responsibility that we have for one another. This is accountability within the church. This is a mutual relationship where if I have sin in my life, I need you to point it out to me. If you have sin in your life, you need us to point it out to you. And if we're uncomfortable with that, if we wrestle through that, a question that we kind of need to ask is like, what, what do we think church is actually about? What is, what is the purpose of this thing that we do? What's the purpose of this gathering? Why are we here? The phrase that... Um, if you've gone through, and there are a couple of you either here or watching online, if you've gone through uh, premarital counseling with Ann and I, or if you've watched anything that Rob Renow has done about marriage, one of the things that he talks about is the first purpose of marriage is, this, is the spiritual transformation of one another. That's kind of the purpose of the church. The spiritual transformation of one another. And if you are married, you know that spiritually transforming the other person is not very much fun, is it? It's not very much fun being spiritually transformed by the other person. But this is the purpose of the church, is spiritual transformation. This is not, we're, we're not here to have a social club as a church, we're actually here to spiritually transform one another, to speak the truth in love with one another, to have the sharper edges of us like rubbed off by other steel. This is why we have a church. And spiritual transformation is a mutual responsibility. We have to be willing to give it and we have to be willing to receive it. I think for many of us, we got the giving it part down pat. We love giving out spiritual transformation to other people. But the millisecond that gets flipped back on us, the American church thing to do is the moment that spiritual transformation gets flipped back on us, the American thing to do is to just go to a different church, right? But that's not what God calls us to. God calls us to spiritual transformation. And this requires relationship. 
And what does that look like? What, is, what does it look like when we have differences and we have disputes? That's next week's sermon. I want to invite you, I want to encourage you to come back next week as we talk about 1 Corinthians 6. So maybe a question that we have is, well, what happened to the guy? Right, we have this, we have this confrontation, so the church all gets together. Paul tells them to gather the church together, throw the guy out, and we're all wondering, okay, well, what happened to him? That sounds mean. Maybe they shouldn't have done that. What happened to the guy? I just love the Bible because it tells us exactly what we need. If you flip over to the next book in your Bible, this is on page 721 in the um, Bible in the seat back in front of you. This is 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5 to 8. I'm not overstating it when I say to you that the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. This is who he's talking about. He's talking about the guy who was sleeping with his stepmom. Most of you opposed him and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it is time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. So now, so I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. Here's what we can infer from this. They kick the guy out. Some people proclaim the gospel to him. He stopped sleeping with his stepmom. He repented of his sin, and then he wanted to come back to church. And then the wackiest thing in the world happened. The church was like, oh, I don't know if we should let the guy back in. Like, isn't that weird? The thing, like the guy that they were so proud of for this sin, most of them did what they were supposed to, threw the guy out, and now he comes back and they're like, uh. And what Paul tells him is, you are to, you are to welcome the person back. This is, this is the purpose as we think about church discipline is restoration and repentance. And here's the thing. When it's done right, it works. People who are sinners repent of their sin and find restoration. And as a church, we want to be a body that welcomes in people who are repentant and looking for restoration. We want to be open. We want to be available. We want to be welcoming to those people because the church is for sinners and it's for repentant sinners. And this is who we are. My invitation for you today is, is to enter into community because this only works right when we're in community with one another. We can only be spiritually transformed when we're actually in relationship. Because I know the way that I operate. If I'm not in relationship with someone and someone wants to spiritually transform me, I'm, I'm not going to be real open to what they have to say. So what I have to do as a believer is I have to pursue relationships with other believers. I have to be ready to receive spiritual transformation. I have to be willing to hear it. I have to be willing to make changes based on the spiritual transformation that they're telling me is, is necessary for my walk with God. But even before that, if you've, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, and this, and this kind of community sounds really good, like a place where you make, I can go to a place and actually be open and honest about what I'm struggling with, and I can find healing and hope, and, and, they're, and they're not going to kick me out because I'm not a believer, like I want in on that, your first step is to make a decision to follow Christ. And we did not empty the baptistry. 
after Amelia was baptized this morning. So what I would encourage you to do, I'm going to go stand over there at that door. I would encourage you, if you've never made that decision, I just want to invite you into that. And if you have made that decision, if you are a Christian, I want to challenge and encourage you. Stop judging non-believers. Instead, let's have the kind of church where we can spiritually transform one another and hold one another accountable. Will you pray with me? Father, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the way that your word answers complex questions in ways that are surprising to us, in ways that allow us to recognize your spirit dwelling within each each of us so that we might come to conclusions that are honoring to you. I'm thankful to be part of a body that is interested and committed to spiritual transformation. I'm thankful for all of the different environments where where we demonstrate that. And I pray that we would desire to be spiritually transformed, be willing to give spiritual transformation and receive spiritual transformation. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.